0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio.
1: This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming
0: on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern
1: classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you love from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free.
0: Hello. Let's get started. So today we have Chekhov's The Seagull. And I wanted to have a clip for you, something from the play, but I got distracted. I typed into Google, Seagull destroy her, which I will explain later in the show. And I came across an article so astonishing that I can't stop thinking about it. This is from The Sun in the UK. Headline, flu murder. Seagull attack victim says it's only a matter of time before they kill someone. Exclusive. It's an exclusive to the sun, people. Okay, article. Thousands of people report being victims of vicious gulls each week, and the problem is so common, town councils are appointing specialist gull control officers. The UK's population of the birds, which can weigh up to four pounds and stand two feet tall, with a five-foot wingspan, has increased fourfold in the in the past 20 years, to 730,000. And they have moved beyond their traditional coastal hunting grounds, now terrorizing towns and cities inland. Five days ago, a gull snatched Gizmo the Chihuahua from Rebecca Hill's home in Paynton, Devon. Yesterday, we told how a gull pecked its way into student Matt Cotton's Torquay flat before, quote, going psycho, and attacking him as he tried to get it out of his bedroom. In Cardiff, a city with around 3,000 breeding pairs, postmen warned they might not be able to deliver the mail over fear of attacks. And last month, pensioners Roy and Brenda Pickup were trapped in their own home for six days as gulls nesting above their front door attacked them every time they left. In Worcester, these vicious and brassy flying rats have waged war on residents in recent years. The birds are even getting boozed up after binging on leftover beer from gardens and outside pubs. Vet David Cooper reported a spate of cases in Devon, Dorset, and Somerset where the birds have been found unconscious and reeking of alcohol. Worcester's clearema says councils are forking out thousands trying to tackle the crisis, like using high-tech gull-proof bins, and plastic eggs, which seagulls are encouraged to incubate instead of their own to allow the population to decline naturally. Let me pause there. Plastic eggs? They're tricking the gulls into incubating plastic eggs. So diabolical. But maybe desperate times call for desperate measures. Back to the article. But so far, nothing has worked, And it has led me to one brutal conclusion. We must kill the bloody things. What is going on? We are in a nightmare. The gulls are turning on us. The world is falling apart. Now, we are talking about The Seagull today, Chekhov's play. His first major play, The Seagull. It's the first one, in my opinion. I don't count Ivanov, which is also a good play, and he's written some others. But I count The Seagull as number one of the four, and part of me... Read this article in horror, but also I was kind of laughing at it, too. Vicious and brassy flying rats. The birds are getting boozed up, reeking of alcohol. It's like like when I was in graduate school, and a friend and I went to get some food at the grocery store, and we're standing in line. I glanced at the Inquirer, and they had a picture of this hideous little creature on the cover, a little kid with fangs and wings, some screaming headline, and my friend looked over and he shook his head and he said, Bat Boy again? <laughs> Bat Boy again. Turned out that it was a thing for the Enquirer, an ongoing story about this little creature, Bat Boy. And my friend was just keeping up with the news, shaking his head. Bat Boy again, kind of like you'd say, huh? Congress didn't get a budget deal done, or, oh, back to school week already. Bad boy again? Hmm. And that's what this is like, sort of. Seagulls on the attack? Holy moly. Part of me thought, come on, I need to find Chekhov. Skip this article. It's not worthy. But there's something that's been revolving in my mind ever since diving into the seagull. The play was a disaster at first. An outrageous Disaster. And then it was a triumph, a transformational triumph. It's hard for a single work to go from rags to riches the way the seagull did. We'll talk about all that later. But one of the funny things about this play is that it's an undeniable tragedy. I mean, if I describe it to you as having parallels to Hamlet and say that a main character attempts suicide in the middle of the play and then actually does kill himself at the end of the play, you'd say that's a tragedy, right? And when it succeeded, that's how it was played. It is a tragedy. But Chekhov called it a comedy. And yet, it's not really played for laughs. It's not a farce. It doesn't mock the idea of suicide or turn it into some kind of black humor. The laughs are painful. The situations are amusing. It's a comedy in the way that life is a comedy, that human Striving is inherently comedic, inherently tragic too. That's the genius of Chekhov. Could there be anything more bleak than the human awareness that we will all grow old and die? And that's if all goes well. If not, we'll die young. That's worse. But we will die. It's a horrible tragedy. It feels like we're We're born on the planet just to be destined for slaughter. My generation and yours too and all the generations that came before ours and all the ones that will come after will all be mowed down. That's awful. And we live with that awareness, that knowledge. It's awful. It's tragic. And yet, there's something inherently comedic about that too. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. And it makes our lives slightly ridiculous. Here we are, working, loving, losing, fighting, winning, trying so hard, and we're all doomed. We try so hard to find meaning, but what meaning can there be? We ache, we burn, we paddle through life like people thrown into the lake, desperate to make it to the shore, and yet there is no point. Time gets us all in the end. That's kind of funny, right? Our paddling. You hear about these gulls, these drunken, boozed-up gulls, and it's awful. Poor Gizmo the Chihuahua has been taken away by one of these brassy, vicious flying rats. But I can't help chuckling at that a little bit. Not at the idea of a dog dying, but that it's Gizmo the Chihuahua. Someone named their dog Gizmo. Little Gizmo. You know that there is some love and affection there, and then there's tragedy. Ah, Gizmo. Ah, humanity. It's part of unlocking the secret to Chekhov to know that he was very, very subtle when he's at his best and his most mature. Everything I've just said is subtext. He's the master of subtext. That was the key difference between the first performance of The Seagull and the later Triumphs. Actors learned how to play subtext. We're a lot more comfortable with it now. One of the reasons why is that we've had a century of reading stories like Chekhov's. We know how to do it. The first readers did not. It wasn't immediately available to the public as viewers of the play either. They had to be trained in a way, they had to know what to expect, know how to watch in order to absorb the plays the way they were meant to be absorbed. Think of a story like an O. Henry story with a big bang of an ending. Since it's Christmas time, let's use The Gift of the Magi as the example, right? You know this one. It's from 1905, the story of the young couple who are in love, but they're poor and they want to buy each other Christmas presents. And the ending of the story is she sold her beautiful long hair to buy him a chain for his watch, but he had sold his beautiful watch to buy her ornamental combs for her hair. There's the twist. That's an ending. Can take some meaning from that ending. The moral of the story is dot, dot, dot. And my sister and I got a book of Maupassant stories once. It came in a box. I think it was from an auction. No, it was from my grandmother's house. She had it in her house. Here's some books. You guys read a lot. Here you go. We were young, maybe fourth or fifth grade, and all of our stories were Disney stories with big bang endings, satisfying victories, Grimm's fairy tales, the witches thrown into the oven, the princess marries Mister Charming, and oh, Henry fits right into that. What's more, grown up, but still with that satisfying twist. Aha! He did da 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 da, and she did da 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 da. Zing, that's how a story should end. We thought, we, that's how we thought. We thought Maupassant was the worst writer we had ever read. <laughs> we thought he had no idea what he was doing. Remember my aunt said, oh, you found my old Mopassant book. That's good. He's great. And we said, no, what are you talking about? He's the worst. His stories don't end right. He has no idea what he's doing. Of course, we had not yet learned how to read a story. Our expectations were miscalibrated, and so we couldn't recognize the subtlety of an ending that was not a neat, tidy resolution of something that happens as a consequence of a character's actions. A love story ends in an embrace. A tragedy ends in a death. A struggle ends up in a a vanquished opponent and a reward for the victor. Well, Maupassant and Chekhov and Joyce and really everyone now, everyone who wants to write a short story for adults, they have an alternative available to them. People know how to read in a different way. They can grasp the meaning of an ending that doesn't wrap things up. The author might be saying, this is going to continue because this is life. Or you might see that things have changed for the character, a new understanding has been reached, an epiphany. Even though the central conceit hasn't been wrapped up, the struggle goes on. Maybe the protagonist enters a new level of knowledge, a new state of mind, a new awareness, but we don't see how that plays out. We're given to imagine it. Maybe the lottery ticket never gets cashed. It just stays in the pocket, and we end the story in that moment of uncertainty. Maybe we find our meaning elsewhere. Good pers- Here's some stories for you sample stories. Good person wins lottery, the end. That's a fun story. The good person has won the lottery. The virtuous is rewarded. Here's another one. Good person wins lottery and goes miserable with the money, right? We know that story too. Can't live with yourself. Money corrupts. Money spoils. You're miserable with money. The end. That's a big, bold story. Here's one. Story number three. Struggling person buys lottery ticket. Puts in pocket. The end. What kind of story is that? It's not a story about good people being rewarded. Not a story about sinners being punished. Not a story about the nature of wealth and happiness. This isn't that kind of story. My second example is more common good person wins lottery, learns that money does not make you happy. That's a story about what happiness is. There's a lesson there. Money doesn't buy happiness. That's kind of an O. Henry story. We see that in The Gift of the Magi. The real gift was their sacrifice. The real gift was their selflessness. Their real gift was love. But the third example is where Chekhov lives. Man buys lottery ticket, places in pocket. What does that say? What's the meaning there? Where do we look? We intentionally don't have a resolution to that. Does he win? Does he lose? If he wins the lottery, is he happy? If he loses the lottery, does he survive? Does he go broke? So we look elsewhere. We're deprived of our natural places to look for meaning. So we look for meaning somewhere else. We see this man buying this ticket. Look at that little ray of hope. He probably won't win. He doesn't have much money, and yet he's willing to do it. Even though the hope he's purchasing is small and probably doomed to failure. Look at that human impulse. He's hopeful. He's willing to dream. He's doomed, but he's willing to dream. There's something beautiful in that, and yet awful, too. But isn't that life? I saw this all the time with my high school friends in Wisconsin, the people I grew up with and around, the battered and bruised, the botched and bungled, the flyovers, the doomed. I'll never forget the story. There was a guy who was working at a bank, and it seemed like he was going to do okay. He had a job. It's a decent job, working at a bank, bank teller. He had some anger issues like so many people in the Midwest and he drank heavily and the two were connected. And there's a lot of stifled frustration in the Midwest and there's no outlet for it. It's like that, like lightning that needs to be discharged somewhere. It's just crackling, looking for that metal rod. And there is no metal rod. So people drink heavily to keep stifling it, tamping it down Maybe this is why I like the Russians so much. I grew up among among that same sensibility. Only instead of vodka, it was brandy. Wisconsinites drink more than half the world's brandy. Brandy and beer. Quiet, desperate lives with some drinking that lets you forget. And then guys with big red noses dancing the polka. Cutting loose. That was my childhood. So, anyway this guy probably doomed, but he's working in a bank. So maybe he'll get out. Let's call him Echterberg. And I said to my friend, how's Echterberg doing? I heard he's working at a bank now. And he, my friend just kind of laughed through his nose. Huh, you know, that laugh, it's not a laugh, not a judgment, just a, oh, right. Kind of like, huh, bad boy again. Oh, Echterberg. This was Chekovian kind of maneuver, this attitude. Huh, Rector And he says, he bet his car on the Rose Bowl. (laughs) He bet his car on the Rose Bowl. Of course he did, and of course he lost. And so he couldn't get to work on time, and he lost his job. What is that moment? That moment where you say, you know what? I feel so good about the Badgers this year. I'm going to bet my car and now I will give it away after, after they've lost. It's like those guys on Easter Island cutting down their last tree. Why not? Who cares? The future may be the future, but now is now. And Chekhov, the beauty of Chekhov is that Achterberg isn't broadly funny, and he isn't broadly tragic, and he isn't a giant symbol. He's just there, treated with dignity, treated with quiet respect, Not escalated into some grand figure either. He's as funny as the rest of us. No more, no less. He's as tragic as the rest of us. No more, no less. He's as important or as unimportant as the rest of us. No more and no less. Chekhov just says, look. Look at this. Look at Echterberg. And we gaze and we supply the rest. We gaze at what Chekhov wants us to. He also doesn't explain what he wants us to see. He doesn't make an argument for the significance. He just says, look, and we do the rest. I want to talk about the seagull now, but we haven't even done our introduction. So let's do that. Look, Chekhov says, look, here they are. So let's look. We will look at Mr. Chekhov and his play, The Seagull, today on the History of Literature. (music) Hello, everyone. Here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Let's take a breath and gather ourselves. I think I've done enough preamble, although I will tie up one little thread to get it out of the way. That article about the crazy gulls, the crazy killer gulls that got us off to a start. It's broader than Chekhov. But what would he find in that story? I think he'd see the moments of pathos of humanity. There's a woman who names her Chihuahua Gizmo. There's a man who has the scars on his head from the gull attack, and here are the mailmen who say they might not be able to deliver the mail. Chekhov doesn't need bat boy. He doesn't need a, a giant demonic gull. He's got all the people around, the ones who believe the gulls are the problem, or a problem, the ones who think that something must be done, the municipal workers, the ones who've suffered, these comical little tragedies at the hands of the gulls, if gulls have hands. <laughs> I guess they don't. The beaks of the gulls. I heard a famous writer say at a party once, I'm an atheist, but I like prayer. What does that mean? I'm an atheist, but I like prayer. I just stopped. I overheard it. He wasn't talking to me. I he just heard it. I had my back to him, and I heard him say that, and I wanted to just turn around and congratulate him (laughs) for this sentence that seemed so significant to me. I think it means that even though this writer was convinced that God does not exist, he likes the part of humans that pray, that believe, that need help and express it, or that offer thanks, or that care about others. He likes faith. Not because it pays tribute to a god or his god, but because it's a human instinct, a human value. And that's why I like the story about the gulls. Not because I'm fascinated by the idea of giant, drunken gulls, but because I'm fascinated by a town that has to face this problem. Those poor people who can't leave their house for six days because of the gulls nesting above their door. It reminds me of the woman I knew who caught her husband cheating on her, and she went to confront him, and she kicked him out of the home, never to return, and he said to her, I never loved you, which is horrendous. And then she got home, and the house was dark. There had been a storm, and the power was out and they had a freezer, and they'd recently filled it with meat, and all the meat was rotting. So there she is, hours after her husband of 20 years has told her, not that he doesn't love her, but that he's never loved her. And she's bagging up rotting meat in garbage bags, gagging as she drags it to the curb. What a story. These things happen all the time to us. They happen every day. Maybe in Wisconsin they happen a little more often, or at least that's how it seems to me. One of my friends got sick, and his cousin came over to help him get well. And by the time my friend got better, his wife and his cousin had fallen in love and said they were running off together. And he was so grateful to them for helping him when he was sick, and he didn't really mind too much they didn't have kids or anything, so he just said to his wife Take anything you want. This will be the smoothest separation ever. Just take whatever you want. And his wife and his cousin thought about for thought about it for a while, and then his wife came back and said We only want two things the refrigerator and the bed. and they hauled them out of the house. It's the kind of story that just stops me. I think about this pretty often, the refrigerator and the bed. So that wraps up our intro, hopefully. Let's talk about the seagull. We'll do this in two parts. We'll talk about Chekhov, where he was in life when he wrote it, how it was received, how that mattered to him, the unbelievable disaster it was at first, and the incredible triumph. That it was later, and why. And then we'll talk about the play itself. I'll tell you what I think is great about it, how I watch the play. There are, Those are our two things today, people. Our refrigerator and our bed, <laughs> where we will eat and where we will sleep. As fundamental as it gets, we will have the first of these after this. Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hatcast. Follow the Cat in the Hatcast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hatcast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Hello, everyone. This is Jack, here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right. Factor. And they're delicious, ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing, chef-crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup, and you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food, and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week, whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com slash literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code literature50 at factormeals.com slash literature50 to get 50% off. Let's start with a quick sketch of Chekhov's life. Who was he before he wrote The Seagull? Chekhov was born in a port city in southern Russia in 1860. His ancestors had been serfs, which is like being a slave. The difference is that slaves are bought and sold for money, while serfs are tied to the land. The landowner owns the serfs who live on the land. Chekhov's grandfather had been a serf, but in 1861 serfdom was abolished, although, as in the United States, that did not suddenly mean that former serfs were on easy street. Life was hard. Chekhov's father struggled to make it as a grocer. Chekhov himself had to work in the shop when he was a young boy, and his father was at times brutal, although his mother was kind and more understanding. Chekhov also had to sing in the church choir which his father conducted. At school, Chekhov learned Greek and Latin classics, and when he was 16, his father finally went bankrupt and moved to Moscow. Chekhov stayed behind to finish school, tutoring some of the younger boys to support himself. In 1879, when he was 19, he joined the family in Moscow and enrolled in medical school. Five years later, he graduated as a doctor. In the meantime he had already found that he could support the family through his writing. He wrote humorous sketches, just a few pages each, about a thousand words of little frenzied things, comic pieces. This is what paid the bills. And he helped his parents and his siblings with money, even as he himself studied medicine and did all the things that young people in their 20s do. He had an active social life, too. His father could not really get much work and they needed Chekhov to keep writing these pieces. At the same time, he continued to develop his more serious and artistic side, and he found better and better journals to publish his stories in, and by the time he was about 28, he was publishing his stories in literary reviews, and he never really looked back. Now he was an artist and well-respected. His output dropped from over a hundred little comic pieces a year to about 10 short stories or so, but they were significant. He was already one of the great practitioners of Russian realism and recognized as such. Critics and authors urged him to take a stand on this or that, to be involved in politics, to sign up for things, to join movements. He kept his humanistic approach. Did not commit. It was 1888 now. He was also a practicing physician, and he wrote a play called Ivanov, which had a bit of success, but it was still trapped in the past, in a way. He wrote another play that was kind of a bust, and a few one-act farces. Irritated by the demands on him to be political, he suddenly left for Siberia to a remote island used as a penal colony. It it was a one-man sociological expedition. Later, he would write a book about it. He was 30 years old when he went. When he returned from his journey, he was working as a doctor and a medical administrator. Famine had overtaken Russia, and times were tough. Doctors were in need. He purchased a country estate about 50 miles south of Moscow. His aging parents lived there, and his sister, who worked as a housekeeper... For the next six years, he was very creatively productive. He wrote masterpiece short stories, including an anonymous story in Black Monk. He had a lot of different worlds to draw on now. The world of the country estate where he was living, the world of literary Moscow and St. Petersburg, the world of the village, the world of Siberia, the world of the sick and the hungry and the poor, his own childhood. He could write a panoramic view of Russia, Based on his own experience, but he was doing so in small pieces, small stories, small characters. He was the guy who noticed the individual who was longing for something or afraid of something or living for something or just existing in a certain way. Chekhov saw those people, saw what was important about them, could bring them to life, capturing all their humanity in a beautiful, melancholy, sometimes haunting mood. And then, as a short story master, he turned to playwriting again. His play was called The Seagull, which is something of a mistranslation. The play takes place on a lake, is not near the sea, or at least the sea is never mentioned, and the word in Russian is more like gull. He probably had other gulls in mind, lake gulls. We're not going to retranslate it now. Not only is it tremendously famous... The Moscow production of it was so transformative that the Moscow Art Theater still uses the image of a a seagull as its emblem. We'll get there. But first, we have to talk about the initial performance in St. Petersburg. So here's Chekhov. He's 36, well-respected. He had a stretch where he supported his entire family with his comic sketches, and then he became a very well-respected artist. He was a doctor who helped people, and he'd written successful enough plays, maybe not artistically successful, but plays that got put on, and people went to see them, and so on. So he puts it out in St. Petersburg, The Seagull. He calls it a comedy, but as I mentioned earlier, it's not ha-ha funny. It's Chekhov. It's the stories come to life. Not that it's a collection of his stories, but the people in the stories, the mood of the stories, the artistic aims of the stories are being animated on the stage. And the production was a fiasco, a total disaster. Some have said that it wasn't so bad, that it's been exaggerated in retrospect, but it it seems to have been pretty bad. It definitely marred Chekhov. You can tell from his reaction that it was... <laughs> a pretty awful night. So what went wrong? Well, it was called a comedy and it was on a stage where people were used to seeing comedies and melodramas. And it was on a night when they were honoring a well-known comedic actress in that style. Think more of vaudeville. Think of that kind of style. Think of the operetta that young Vito Corleone goes to see with his friend in Godfather 2. Melodrama. Villains with twirling mustaches. That's what theater goers were used to. A young woman who sells flowers. Virtuous young woman who goes to the city. Who gets her money stolen from her. Maybe her her father shoots the robbers. Or shoots her lover who corrupted her. It's broad like that. The acting is broad. Weeping, wailing. A man who's angry turns red and stomps around the stage. Beside himself with fury a woman who's in distress, might faint into a sofa, that kind of thing. That's what the audience is looking for. And here comes Chekhov with his naturalistic play, with dialogue that's realistic, a drawing room drama, with eight or so grown-ups talking about life and art and hopes and dreams, quiet lives, quiet hopes, quiet dreams, quiet frustrations. And the audience jeered and hissed by act two, Chekhov had fled the audience and was hiding backstage. He said it was one of the most traumatic experiences of his life, and he he said that he he had known it was going to go poorly. They had only rehearsed for two days, and not all the actors knew their lines. There's a play within a play that's meant to be kind of comic, kind of a misunderstood attempt at an artistic play. I'll explain that further when we talk about the actual play. And the St. Petersburg audience didn't get the satire of it. They thought it was the real play, sort of, and they shouted it down. There was an actor who, uh, an actress who plays the ingenue, and Chekhov said in rehearsal she had brought people to tears with her performance. But that opening night, the audience was so hostile, she got scared and lost her voice she couldn't deliver her lines. Chekhov later said, I will never again write a play or have actors acting in them. That was one of the problems, not just that the audience didn't know how to watch. There was something wrong with the audience, but something wrong with the actors too, with the exception, I suppose, of the ingenue who lost her voice. The actors didn't know how to play this kind of a play either. They were used to acting in a different style. They looked for the broad gesture. They tried to play it as a kind of melodrama. The comedy wasn't subtle in their hands. It was farce. A disaster. And yet, there was a man who saw the play, a man named Namirovitch Danchenko. I'll just call him Namirovich. He was a serious playwright, and, and he, in fact, won a prize that year for the best play, and he said, this should have been... This should have gone to the seagull. Chekhov should have won, not me. Everyone said Chekhov—that disaster. Now, this Nemirovich was not just anybody. He was about to found the Moscow Art Theatre along with his fellow actor and an impresario named Stanislavsky. They were looking for plays like this, looking to get away from the broad nature of the vaudevillian operettas, the melodramas. They had a new way of acting in mind. Stanislavski became famous for his system of acting, and he was a kind of tyrant to the actors, a micromanager, writing out cues for the actors like, here's where you should wipe your nose and here's where you should smack your lips. And so on. Here's where you should clean your nails with a matchstick. Here's where you should wipe away sweat from your brow. It was a total micromanaging of the actors. He wrote all that out in the script for them. Here's what you have to do. And I think he was drawn to this because he was, in part at least, because he was trying to get them not to do all the broad stuff they were used to doing and say, This is a a weeping scene. Don't rub your eyes with both fists. Don't throw the back of your hand against your forehead and fall backwards into the couch. That's what I think Stanislavsky was doing. He's saying, I'll choreograph all your gestures to make sure that you don't add what you probably think is called for on the stage. So the audience will get it. That's not what we want here. We're going to ask the audience to get it in a different way. Now, Stanislavsky became famous for his tours through America and the Stanislavski method, which Stella Adler picked up directly from Stanislavski and then taught directly to actors like Marlon Brando. I don't have time to talk about Stanislavski's method and how it differs from what Americans also call the method. And it turned out that Stanislavski also didn't really understand parts of Chekhov very well, and the two of them argued at times over different performances and interpretations. But there is no doubt That Stanislavski's theater, the Moscow Art Theater, was a much better home for Chekhov than St. Petersburg had been, and Stanislavski was a much better interpreter than the actors in St. Petersburg, and there's no doubt that Stanislavski's career was fueled by the plays of Chekhov, which were perfect for what he was looking to do. And for all the disputes the two had, the other co-founder of the Moscow Art Theater, that guy Namirovich I mentioned, not as famous as Stanislavski. The one who said Chekhov should have won my prize. He definitely understood Chekhov. It was a good home. So we come to the seagull now. Instead of these melodrama-style actors, we have Stanislavski playing one lead and his heir, his artistic heir, a future director and actor, playing another key role. And a third actor named Olga Nipper, who eventually became Chekhov's wife, playing another key role. She was the love of his life, Olga. It's fair to say that she understood him, too. So the play is in much better hands now with those three actors. And indeed, it was a big success. Nemirovich said after the play, there was a prolonged silence, and then applause burst from the audience like a dam breaking. The critics loved it. Chekhov had still not seen it. He didn't go to the opening night. Audience members started writing to him, full of excitement about the experience and praise for the play, and he thought they were just being polite. He had given up the theater, remember? He was still scarred by St. Petersburg. It was only after Namirovich's urging that he had even agreed to let him have it, but he wanted nothing to do with the production. And here's an audience member writing to him, saying, quote, In the first act, something special started, if you can so describe, a mood of excitement in the audience that seemed to grow and grow. Most people walked through the auditorium and corridors with strange faces, looking as if it were their birthday. And indeed, dear God, I'm not joking. It was perfectly possible to go up to some completely strange woman and say, What a play, eh? End quote. In the 1980s, a Russian critic wrote that the Stanislavsky production was, quote, one of the greatest events in the history of Russian theater and one of the greatest new developments in the history of world drama, end quote. Chekhov didn't know it yet, or at least he wasn't admitting it to himself, but at the time of that production, he only had about six years left to live. He would continue to write stories, but he was now back into the world of writing plays, too. He was cautious. He was proprietary. He could make demands. He would say, how can I not see this? It's my play. How can I write anything if I don't see what you're doing with my words? He would say of an actress, she cannot be in my play. He would say, you don't get it. You cannot stage it this way. This is impossible. This will ruin it. He cared. He cared how his plays were acted, but he was now willing to write another and another and another. And those four plays, The Seagull, Uncle Vanya, Three Sisters, and The Cherry Orchard became four of the greatest plays written since Shakespeare. We'll take another break, then come back and explore what makes The Seagull so good. When Chekhov set out to write The Seagull, he wrote a letter that said, quote, I am writing a play which I shall probably not finish before the end of November. I am writing it not without pleasure, though I swear fearfully at the conventions of the stage. It's a comedy. There are three women's parts, six men's, four acts, landscapes, view over a lake, a great deal of conversation about literature, little action, tons of love. End quote. That sounds simple. That sounds subtle. Sounds quiet. He doesn't quite depart from some of the conventions of melodrama in The Seagull. There's a suicide after all, although it happens stage, And there are conventions he didn't quite escape. Actors sometimes soliloquize, speaking directly to the audience, or they give uh, one another exposition in their dialogue. Things that don't make sense for their characters to say to other characters, but that help the audience. But let's recognize that Chekhov was moving in a new direction, and it's a little hard for an artist to move all at once. Directors today can correct some of those things with their adaptations and interpretations, if they wish. They can adjust now, because audiences can handle it. We're all in a post-Chekhov world. It's totally natural to us now to understand subtext. We would find the operettas to be hard to watch. We laugh when we're supposed to tremble with fear or cry when we see the kind of overacting that it looks like to us today in that kind of a play. But let's just focus on what I love about the seagull. This might not be what a historian of theater would find most essential, but I don't care. I read and watch to help me make sense of the world, to find truth and beauty where I can to feel something. So this is how I read the play and how I watch it. Let's start with what I think is the central relationship in the story, a mother and her son. There's a bond, right? That's already filled with potential energy. If you know mothers and sons, well, maybe not all mothers and sons. My mother and I don't have this kind of explosive dynamism, I don't think, but I know plenty of mothers and sons who do. I've seen it with my own kids and their mother. There's something there. Hey, let me put it this way. I feel lucky to be connected to both my boys, but I don't sit up in bed in the middle of the night and sense that something is wrong. There's a kind of harmonic bond there, like the music of the universe chiming. They're on the same wavelength in a way. I get it. There are times when I can only watch and appreciate and admire this mother-son relationship. The boys might turn to me for advice on any subject. They listen to me. If they choose what car to ride in on the way home, it's mine all the way. We spend hours together watching movies and the Packers and shooting hoops in the backyard. But when they're sick, when they're most frightened, when the emotions are at their most vulnerable, they look for Mama. I get it. She carried them literally. There's just a bond there that has continued. It's powerful. So, right from the start in this play, a mother and a son, the heart of our play, two beating hearts of our play, the mother and the son. We have a middle-aged, successful actress is the mother. Do you know any successful artists, writers, or film stars? I know a few. It puts their children in a strange position. They admire their mom like everyone else admires their mom. Their mom can get love and affection from them and from others, too. They're in a kind of competition with her audience. You want to surpass your mom, to be better than her, to earn her praise, to earn her love, her admiration. But what if she is already the sun that everyone else orbits around? You might want to be the sun, S-U-N. And you want your mom to be more like the moon, reflecting your glory, smiling at your success. But what if she's already the sun? What if she doesn't want to give that up? What might happen is that you go into another field. Your mom is a famous CEO of a tech company, so you become a doctor. Or she's a famous actor, so you go into business. Why compete? But sometimes you do compete. Maybe you don't think of it that way when you start out. Maybe the pull of her field is as strong on you as it is on her. She's a famous novelist, so you want to be a famous novelist too. You've watched and admired her all your life. And now, all of a sudden, you're kind of in competition in a sense. You want to measure up, but she's already established. She wants you to do well, but she can't lie. You're not there yet. That's what happens here. The son wants to be artistic, too. She's a famous actress, very successful, and he wants to be an artist as well. He's in his early 20s. So what do you do if you're young and idealistic? Do you follow in the same path? Mimic? Well, maybe you do, but you can also say, as I think is probably more common, no, your generation is full of crap. You're acting in cheesy plays. You're acting in schlock. I'm an artist, capital A. You're just a performer and entertainer. You're part of the problem. I'm not rich. I'm not successful. Nobody reads my work, but that's because they don't understand it. I'm engaged in a different project that you don't understand. You're the old guard. I'm the new. That's the tension here. The son who says, I want to succeed at your game, mom but I don't really even respect your success. And the mom who says in return, I'm not ready to step aside and say that what I do is worthless and that you're the true artist. They can love each other, but everything they care about or that they most care about is in conflict. Let's add one more character to the mix. The mother who's in her early 40s has a lover. He's younger than her, but older than her son. He's in the middle. But he's a successful writer too, successful like she is. And so the son hates him. The son says, Here's another guy. Here's another part of the problem. Here's a guy who writes schlock. Here's a guy who doesn't get it. You don't get it. The two of you are successful and you represent the artistic world. I hate and want to overturn. If only everyone would recognize me and my genius. All this is. What I'm taking from the dialogue, this is the subtext that I'm exploring. We learn this from the dialogue, but the dialogue doesn't state this necessarily. It does out, come right out and say it. It says things like, when are you going back to Moscow? And I think his writing is childish and naive and that sort of thing. I'm just pulling back the dialogue and telling you what I see underneath. So we have the artistic wannabe and his successful mother, who is used to being praised and can be a bit tyrannical, and her lover, the writer who has just the kind of success that lets you walk through life confident that everyone who hates you is just jealous. Maybe a John Grisham, if he wasn't. He's not a genre writer necessarily. Maybe a a John Updike or a Philip Roth type when they were young, when they're in their early 30s, say. Respected, but also Kind of a bestseller. I'm not sure who the right example is, actually. Harlan Coben, maybe. Not sure. Naturally. The artistic wannabe hates him. This lover of his mother. Why did you bring him? Why are you with him? And here we have one of our parallels with Hamlet, the first of many, although I won't list them all. They quote Hamlet to one another a couple of times in the play. It's fairly obvious that it's a parallel here. But we have, look at this scenario I've already sketched out. We have a Queen Gertrude, her new king, this writer, and her son, who is beside himself and doesn't know what to do. Here's a replacement for his father. Right there, and it's a a person almost designed to be someone he'll hate, a successful writer. Nothing can be worse to the young wannabe writer who has not succeeded yet. And this young playwright, our Russian Hamlet, decides to put on a play for them at this country estate. He has his girlfriend act in it, his girlfriend who lives on a neighboring estate, an innocent girl, the kind of girl who will get him he hopes, who will understand him, who can admire his artistic ambition, who's excited by him, who thinks he's smart and a genius. She's of his generation, and she's coming from a narrow background, and she's excited by the chance to be near these celebrities. She acts in this play within a play, and it's a symbolist play, which was kind of a thing at the time, but we might think of it now just as being avant-garde in some way. Think of the mother and her lover as being the establishment, the kinds of plays that everyone goes to see and make a lot of money, and the son is being determined to put on an avant-garde play for the people who are staying at the estate. Six or eight people are in the audience, and the play begins, and the mother and her lover don't really take it seriously. Think about what's in the mother's mind. I'm sure part of her wants to like the play. She loves her son, after all. But she knows that he has no respect for her art, for her career. So she's also a little threatened. And it's easy for the establishment figure to look at the avant-garde and say, oh, I don't understand it. Or this is silly. Or to laugh at certain parts. Right? That's the easiest thing in the world. How cute, how quaint. You're trying so hard to be artistic. You say it's real or authentic, or you need a new form. I, meanwhile, play to sell out crowds in Moscow. I think I know a little something about theater, my child. That's sort of the dynamic here. So the play that he puts on for the others is a disaster, and the son cuts it off. (laughs) He stops the performance. I hate you all. Leave me be you don't get it. You're not worthy. You're not worthy. He's furious at his mother. Powerful stuff, right? Mother and son. Mother with a lover. Let's add another wrinkle. Let's add the wrinkle that the girlfriend, the country girl, the actress, the girlfriend of the artist wannabe, let's have her fall in love with the mother's lover. Look at how neatly that ratchets things up. The actress wants to hold on to her power, but she's aging. She's in her early 40s. Who knows how long she'll be on top? Early 40s already. Others will come along, young beauties ready to take her place on the stage, nudge her to the side, and she has this lover, a celebrity himself. They're a power couple in Moscow, but he's younger. He likes her now, but what happens when a young woman tells him she'll do anything for him, which is what happens out there in the country estate, when the young actress, the girlfriend of our artist wannabe, starts falling for him, and she quotes lines in one of his books to her, and he looks it up, and the line says, if you ever need my life, come and take it. Mm, temptation. But I jumped ahead because before this happened, the son did something bizarre. He killed a gull. He shot it and he gives it to the young girl. For him, this is a symbol of something significant. He lives in a symbolist world, after all, where gestures are full of meaning and objects are full of meaning. And he himself expresses himself that way. You're the gull and you're the seagull. You're a seagull. And Here, I killed this for you. This represents my love for you. That's how he expresses himself, as if geniuses are supposed to go around doing meaningful things that other people find erratic. I know people like this. You probably do too. This is how they are, especially when they're young. I made this for you. I made this, this sculpture out of chewing gum. I'm giving it to you as a sign of my love. And the recipient says, oh, my God, you creepy weirdo. What do I do with this? (laughs) I don't get it. What do I do with it? Have you seen young lovers doing this to one another? Because I have. The dead gull does not go well, does not go over well with the young actress. She loves being with this family. She loves being on this estate. She loves this proximity to artists and writers and actors, famous people. She herself kind of wants to join that world. She sees something exciting and liberating about it, something she can aspire to. She falls in love, not with the avant-garde son, but with the established writer. She sees that he's a little more mature, a little more understandable, frankly, a little less bizarre and needy. And he's with this older woman, who is kind of a tyrant sometimes, a bit of a diva. She has outbursts. She's not always kind to the staff. She's in a kind of contentious relationship with her son. She's a little dangerous. She could strike out with her claws. Her claws can come out if someone tries to get in in between her and her lover. Here's the writer, the young writer who says what a breath of fresh air this is. How young, how beautiful she is. Maybe it's what I want. Maybe it's what I need. Her, this, the purity of it, the innocence, the beauty. And yet, because he's a writer, because he's sophisticated, he sees how this will probably end. He's already written this down. He's already made a note of it. He says, here's a plot for a short story. A young girl lives all her life on the shore of a lake. She loves the lake like a gull, and she's happy and free like a gull. But a man arrives by chance, and when he sees her, he destroys her out of sheer boredom like this gull. Mm. I'm tempted to keep going, summarize more of the play, but I'm also tempted to stop there. I don't think you really need to know too much more. This square of these four people is the main one. It's two triangles that fit together and form a square. There are other relationships too. There's a woman in love with a young artist who is amazing, Masha. She dresses in black and says, I'm in mourning for my life, which is such a great line. And she knows what's what. She loves him and he barely notices her. She's miserable and doomed. She drinks. And there's a man who loves her. This is the tons of love Chekhov was talking about. A teacher who loves her, and she agrees eventually to marry him, but they're destined for unhappiness. There's also a doctor who's visiting on the estate who's wise and kind. He's having an affair, too. He's also in love. And he comments on how the lake has put these romantic ideas in everyone's mind, all destined for unhappiness, in a sense, striving for happiness but finding the wrong fit or being in love with someone who's not in love with you. Dangerous love. There's a brother of the famous actress who's older. He's well-established as a civil servant. He's kind of retired, but he's sickly now, and he's looking back on his life as a life he generally appreciates but also has some regrets for. He never became what he wanted to become. There are a couple of other people besides, but I've given you the heart of the play and I've done it without spoiling the ending, and I would encourage you all to watch it or to read it. Eventually, there are some successes in the play, and eventually there are some failures, and there's a tragedy, but even the tragedy in the way it's handled shows a great deal of humanity on the part of Chekhov and his character, the doctor especially. Watch for that, see how that's handled. It's very subtle, very Chekhovian. There's a film version you can watch starring Annette Benning, I like quite a bit, with Elizabeth Elizabeth Moss playing Masha, the young woman who wears black. There's also a version with Blythe Danner as the young ingenue that people rave about, which I think is available on YouTube to watch. And if you can go to see it live. If you're a fan of Chekhov's short stories, you get that same flavor, that same melancholy look at the world. It's the man who gets sick and his cousin and his wife who take his refrigerator and his bed. It's the man who bet his car on the Rose Bowl and struggles to find a job. Or the woman whose husband says, I never loved you. I never loved you. Never. Not, I don't love you now, or I I don't think I love you anymore, or I no longer love you. It's, I never loved you. It's the couple who can't leave their house for six days and the little dog, Gizmo the Chihuahua. They offered a 5,000-pound reward for news of Gizmo. The newspaper did, but Gizmo was never found. The seagull took him, the mysterious seagull who represents something in all of us, who reflects something in all of us, who stands for something in all of us. The seagull that flies overhead and the one we shoot and toss at our lover's feet, desperate for attention, desperate for meaning, and love, and happiness, and fulfillment of some kind, because we are humans. The center of the world, and the tiniest little specks. Tragic and comic, all at once. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. The Seagull. Next Thursday, we will move to Uncle Vanya. But before that, we'll have a good episode for Monday. A couple of good guests with an exciting new anthology. I think you will like that episode, too. We are the History of Literature. Find us at historyofliterature.com. And we're teamed up with LitHub Radio and The Podglomerate. Find that at www.thepodglomerate.com. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.